Well, I trust you've been encouraged and challenged as I have been this weekend. All of the great teaching from the Word of God and gifted men who have come to bring the Scripture, the truth to us. I'm delighted to be able to introduce to you Dr. Zach Bowden. He's been serving at Cedarville University since 2013 as the executive assistant to the president, as well as the assistant professor of theological studies. In 2022, he assumed a new role, became the school's very first chief of staff, and as the chief of staff, Zach is responsible to ensure that communication between the president's office and campus leadership is consistent. So it's especially a blessing this morning to have Zach, especially in light of homecoming weekend and all the additional responsibilities that he had on his plate. He continues to teach in the school's biblical and theological studies department. Zach has had PhD in church history and historical theology, an MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and a BA in English from Texas A&M. I understand from Matt that you are all about all things Texas. Is that true? It's a true. It's good. All things Texas. That's what I understand. He and his family attend Grace Baptist, and his wife's name is Emily. His kids are Haddon, Molly, and Claire. And from the beginning of my interactions with Zach, at the end of the spring, my, my, uh, my attention has been, the observation has been of Zach's desire to serve Christ by serving Christ's body. I can't tell you the number of times that Zach has told me on repeated occasions, whatever you need, whatever time you need me, whatever you need me to preach, his heart has been to serve. I have been so grateful for your tender heart of serving Christ and serving Christ's body. It has been an encouragement and a challenge to me personally. Zach is coming this morning to kind of bring the the, the end of what missions is all about, and that is the glory of God. Attention is set on the glory of God. And so this morning, as you bring the word, we're grateful for your heart that echoes the heart of Christ, and thank you for coming this morning to serve Christ's body in this way. morning, y'all. Uh, holy cow, that was too kind of you, Andrew. Wow, wowzers. Uh, if you want to join me over in John 17, that's where we'll be this morning. Well, it's such a, it's such a wonderful thing to be able to be a local congregation to gather together and talk about missions for a weekend. Let me assure you and set your expectations when this is the exact opposite of a best for last type of situation. So please brace yourselves accordingly. But I imagine for a lot of us in here, especially if you've been participating in the conference and you're at this point in the show, we're all very much aware of the need to get the gospel out to the nations, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. We know that, and we desire that. We want to see that happen. But I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but Monday's coming. And so with that, I can imagine that can also provoke a lot of questions, is that we can hear so much throughout the weekend about 
significant need, and even with John's prayer, being reminded of the fact of how dire things seem in our world right now, the task can be incredibly daunting. How can we possibly get the gospel out to the nations? And even if we just don't think about the scope of the task, perhaps we think about it within the context of our own lives. I got to go to work tomorrow, man. You know, I got, I got kids to take care of. I got classrooms to sit in. I got things to do. So how do I jive that with this call of missions I've been reminded so much of this week? And, and perhaps, perhaps missions can begin to feel like a heavy burden that we can't bear. And that's, of course, not what we want. Because we don't want to think about missions as just simply some goal that God leaves for us to achieve. We don't want to kind of feel the weight of, oh, goodness, it's now up to us. Because if we get the starting point of missions wrong, then we may very well kind of tend to make an unintentional mess of everything else. And perhaps the best thing we can do to have the right starting point in mind when we think about the task for missions of us here in Columbus, Ohio, is just to think about it from listening to a prayer of Jesus. And from listening and learning from that prayer, perhaps having our own understanding of missions and everything that else comes with it, shaped by just the wonderful reality that before missions is anything else, it is God's very own promise that He makes and that He intends to keep. Because when we come to John 17, it's just remarkable about the fact that Jesus prays. That's astounding. And he made a habit of it at seemingly all the wrong times. Is, you know, the 12 guys, they'd see a need in the crowd, and they'd be like, Peter, you seen Jesus? No, man, I haven't seen Jesus. And have you, have you guys seen Jesus? No, we haven't seen Jesus. Where's Jesus? And they go, and lo and behold, like, hey, master, hey, people need to do a miracle right now, man. What are you doing? He's praying. And he's trying to teach us something in doing that. Because one of the things the challenges for us, especially when we think about the concept of prayer, is it feels so perfunctory. Does it really matter? Is it just a nicety of the Christian life? And what John 7 teaches us is it's so far from that. And what's even more remarkable about this prayer is the timing in which we find it. It's a prayer that Jesus issues at the hour of His crucifixion, at the hour of His cross. And at that moment, what He decides to do is He decides to pray. And He decides to pray for Himself, and for his disciples, and true story for every single one of you. And so here we have this conversation between the Son and the Father, and we get to listen in. And the order of this prayer is paramount, because Jesus begins with a very, very important request. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Jesus spoke these things, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. One of the things that we have to remember here is who Jesus is. Is if we're going to have a right understanding of missions, that we need to understand the one to whom we take forth into the world, because after all, that's what we do. 
We don't go out to the world with a set of ideas and concepts. We go out into the world proclaiming a person, Jesus. And the wonderful thing about this Jesus that he clues us into in this prayer is this conversation that he's having between he and the Father is not unusual. Because what Jesus does on earth in his ministry is he is just acting out for us and showing us the nature of who he has always been. Because one of the other things to keep in mind is just that Monday is not just coming, but if you've been to a department store lately, Christmas is coming too. And one of the things that we can be in danger of thinking about when we come to Christmas time is that's the time when we celebrate that Jesus becomes the Son of God, but that is wildly incorrect. He has always been the Son of God. What we celebrate at Christmas time is that the Son comes down and takes on flesh for us and for our salvation. And so when we think about the starting point of missions and we think about it from the vantage point of God himself, what we're reminded of is this truth, that if Jesus asked to be restored to the glory that he had before the foundation of the world, what that reminds us of is, very simply, friends, our God is who he is. Our God is eternal. And not just that, but our God is eternally happy. Before God made anything, he was perfectly happy. And so when we think about why are y'all here and why am I here? Why is anything here? Why did God make the world and make us in it? The answer is because he wanted to. So in other words, friends, you are not an obligation to God. You are not a burden to him. You are here and I am here precisely because God wants us to be. In his freedom, in his love, in his grace and his kindness, he puts us here. And Jesus' prayer reminds us of that. And not only does it remind us of that, but it reminds us that everything, everything is under the control of this God. Because the hour does not surprise Jesus. That this Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, is also the Lord of history. And it is not until the right time that the hour comes. After all, we, we have a hard time kind of dealing with this. Even Jesus' own mother had a hard time dealing with it. We think about that wedding in Cana, when worst case, worst case scenario happens at a wedding, the wine runs out. Mary's like, Jesus, you gotta do something about this. And he says, well, you don't understand. My hour's not come yet. It's not time yet. But now it's time. And so he prays. And what we find here is that we learn a great, great deal about who we are, what our purpose is, and the nature of the world into which God sends us. Because when we think about, for instance, our identity, one of the counterintuitive things the Scripture reminds us of is the fact that we need to be told who we are. Now, again, that, that may sound strange because I think we would all naturally assume if anyone knows me, I think it would be me. But let's just even kind of just pause to think about that on a very, very basic level. Do you know exactly what kind of person you're going to be like at the end of the day today? I mean, really? 100% you sure? Because look, if I'm being honest... There are a lot of factors 
So number one, am I going to get a nap? And I know the answer to that is no, because I'm leaving here for four hours of third and sixth grade volleyball. So the prognosis isn't great. But I say all that to say is that there is only one who truly knows himself, and that's God. God knows precisely who he is. And because he knows who he is, he tells us about himself, and then he tells us about ourselves because, hello, he's the one who made us after all. He knows exactly who we are. And we see Jesus revealing ourselves to us all throughout the scriptures, don't we? Jesus meets this Samaritan woman. It's like, who are you? Are you greater than Jacob? And not only does Jesus know who he is, but he knows exactly who she is and knows all about her sordid past and makes sure she knows it too. Jesus is having a conversation with the Jews and they put up their parentage, their genealogy. We are children of Abraham. Jesus says, no, no, you're not. You're actually children of the devil. But the wonderful thing about Jesus is that he is the only one who can take these children of the devil and make them children of God. And that's precisely what he comes to do. And so think about ourselves this morning. As we all walked into this place, it's not unlikely that we walked in telling ourselves a variety of different things about who we are. Maybe we said, I'm incredibly weary. Maybe we walk in saying, I'm incredibly full of doubt about this whole God thing. Maybe we walked in after just yelling at our daughter for forgetting the Bible that we literally told her to have ready 45 minutes before we left for church. I'm not speaking from experience. <laughs> and I'm over it. I'm over it. <laughs> we walk in feeling, I'm a terrible parent. Feeling like just like an awkward mess. Well, friends, that's, that's not at all what Jesus has to say about you. Because notice who Jesus says we are when he prays for us. In verse 20, he says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Who are we? We are those who have come to believe in Jesus by virtue of the apostles' message. Who are we? As Jesus later says, we are those who have been given by the Father to the Son. We're part of this remarkable divine gift exchange where the Father gives us to his one and only Son. Who are we? We are children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who you are this morning. And it's the, one of the reasons why we keep showing up Sunday after Sunday, because we are told a competing, competing host of things all throughout the week, and we need to come back here to hear by faith who, in fact, we actually are. Because Satan will contend with our consciences all week, won't he? You're this or you're that, where the gospel tells us precisely who we are. And not only that, not only does Jesus remind us of who we are, but he reminds us of our purpose. Is when we think about our purpose, you know, for instance, I I work at a university, and so I I talk with college students a lot. And even if you're not in college, you know, usually around age, age 18, if you come from a Christian context, you're kind of trying to figure out, you know, what is God's will for my life? That's a very common question. That's a great question. But, but usually the question has to do with, well, what, what's my occupation going to be? Or who am I going to marry? Or where am I going to live? 
and all kinds of questions that relate to that. And those are good questions. Those are important questions. But they're not the most fundamental questions when it comes to the will of God. Because the wonderful thing about this prayer is Jesus makes explicit what the will of God is for us. He's so very clear. And notice what he says. Notice what he asks for the Father to do for you and for I. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Unity. That's what Jesus wants. A united family. That seems like a tall order. <laughs> I mean, when we think about just the state of our country, we don't think about unity necessarily at the top of the list. And in fact, it's been said so very often that we live in such a tribalistic time. We all kind of get in our own silos. We all have so many reasons to argue with one another. How can unity be possible? But again, notice that Jesus isn't asking you to do it. He's not asking me. He's saying, Father, make them one. And not just one in general. Make them one like we are one. So when we think about the work of unity, what we have to understand is that it is God's doing. It is God's work. God binds the people together. But the question is, well, how does he go about doing that? Well, Jesus says that he goes about doing it by giving glory away. As he says, I have given them glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. Again, notice the comparison. It's staggering. It's to be one as father and son is one. And Jesus says, the way that this has been accomplished is I have given them the very glory you have given me. And so the question is, well, what is that? And glory is one of those kind of tough concepts to wrap your head around. You know, when we think about glory, perhaps we think about the glory of sport. We think about the glory of victory. Or we think about the glory of a remarkable accomplishment. But in the scriptures, glory is always tethered to God's name. So, for instance, perhaps the best way we can think about glory is the way it was taught to Moses. Is when you think about Moses, Moses has this remarkable life. And while on Mount Sinai, what Moses makes clear is he has not seen enough. And so what Moses asks God is stunning. He says, Moses asks of God, please show me your glory. And God responds to him in Exodus 33, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So what we find here is that Moses asked to see something, and instead God tells him something. And this is what God tells him in Exodus 34. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, 
and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. See, the Lord's glory is his name. It's who he is. And I wonder, friends, if this is who you think God is. Because notice what God does not lead out with. God does not begin by telling Moses, the Lord, the Lord, angry and wrathful. That's not how he starts, is it? He says, I am the Lord, compassionate and gracious. That is who he is. And that is who he has always been. That's who our God is. And so what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is praying is that we would be bound together by this glory and by this name. Because the question of unity always provokes the question, well, what are y'all united around? And for us, we are united around Jesus. We are bound together in him. This is exactly why Paul will later say in Romans 8, What can separate us from the love of Christ? Well, if we're in Jesus and he's in the Father, absolutely nothing. And we notice that when we think about this unity then, we find that its purpose is for the world to see it. And when you think about that, what you find is the world looking in on a congregation like this one and finding a group of people who would not otherwise be bound together. A group of people from different races, different socioeconomic classes, different ages, different political affiliations. People with a lot of reasons to disagree with one another. But we are bound together by the cross of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that one of the ways that we show that unity is by being able to together pray our Father. Because that's one of the marvels of the Christian life. How is it that you and I can say our Father? It's because of the work of Jesus, and it's because Jesus comes and he adopts us into this family so that now we can say, along with Jesus, our Father. He's our Father too. And we believe that And so we pray that, and we're bound together in that. And the problem for so many of us, and especially for me, is that we we tend to want to emphasize the differences that exist among us, but that's typically because we're just hardwired to self-justify ourselves. Is that we're hardwired to kind of try to measure our spirituality against one another. Well, at least I'm not like that dude. But what we find is that's very much the spirit of the Pharisee we meet in Luke, isn't it? It's when we see a a Pharisee and a tax collector go to the temple for prayer. Who's the Pharisee looking at? He's praying to God, but he's looking at the tax collector. And he's saying, I'm glad I'm not that guy. I haven't done what he's done. Where's the tax collector? He's on the ground. And he won't even look up. Because what the tax collector realizes that the Pharisee doesn't is ultimately he doesn't have to do business with anybody else other than God. And he knows he doesn't measure up. Now there's a story a pastor told his friend once where he had this buddy who is a preacher up in New York City 
and he just got beaten up. It's real bad. Had a really tough situation in the church. Really unhappy. And so he left, and he found him years later in Florida, and he was way happier. Now, I know what you're thinking. Dude's in Florida. (laughs) But it's not just that. Although, admittedly, growing up in Texas, I didn't know the sunshine could go away for as long as it does here. (laughs) But I've been saying a lot of Ohio lords the past 10 years. Don't get me wrong. But it's a wonderful... I'm very grateful for Ohio. Please hear me. (laughs) But we we have our own Buckeye. But when you think about that, what he find is, what he realized is he said, I finally realized everybody in my congregation is crazy, including myself. And this is what he understood. We're all in the same boat. Every single one of us come in here a mess. Every single one of us come in here with struggles, and we come, up here, come in here with doubts, and we come in here with questions. I imagine we probably have a great more solidarity than we can imagine because if we hear the gospel right, we understand we're all on the ground just like that tax collector. And it's from that soil of solidarity that Jesus goes forth to build unity, is understanding what we were and now who we are together in Christ. Because you see, God doesn't just save us in in isolation. God saves us into a family. We're brothers and sisters now, and that's not just a metaphor. It's the truth. We are now bound together with obligations for one another, to care for one another, and all of our differences are swallowed up by the blood of Christ. And when the world sees that, when they see people who are gathered together and bound together and are caring for one another, they say, that is incredibly strange. Could you please tell me more? And that's precisely what we want. Because what we want them to understand, above all else, is that the one who binds us together is the Son who is sent from the Father. As the one who is sent to die for us, for your sin and for my sin. Because notice that's exactly what Jesus says here in John 17. Jesus says that he wants the world to see that the love that we are loved with is nothing less than the Father's love for the Son. And that is altogether staggering, isn't it? As he says again, I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And so what we find is that Jesus then sends us is what we find is that when we think about missions, missions is caught up in this, in this great work of God where God has always made the first move. God comes to us, friends. God stoops down to us, just like you or I might stoop down to talk to a child. And he speaks to us in a way we can understand because he's compassionate and he's gracious and his love is steadfast. And as he stoops down, what we find is we're kind of caught up in that work. And just as the Son is sent by the Father, so the Son sends his disciples, and lo and behold, here we are. Because we need not wonder if mission's working. Look around, gang, it's working just fine. Because we have all heard the gospel from another. 
We had just finished up saying that Jesus is Lord. As Paul reminds us, the only reason we can say Jesus is Lord is because God in his kindness sent us a preacher to tell us it's so. How will we hear without a preacher after all? And so what we find is this long line of God sending preachers. You may have never met the Apostle Peter, but I promise you've heard from him. Because you've heard the same gospel that Christ gave him to preach forth. And so we do the same. That's why I love church history so much. I know that makes me weird. I know that makes me strange. And yes, it makes me lonely. But really, (laughs) what church history is at the end of the day is just this. It is just as one church history prof once said. It's explaining to everybody there is somebody who came between Jesus and your grandmother and it matters. In other words, the point being that if it is your grandma that told you about Jesus, somebody told her. And somebody told the person. We come from a long line of handing down the gospel. What a wonderful, rich inheritance. And so when we think about it that way, what we find is, how do we go forth? Because notice what Jesus says here in verse 24. Father or rather, verse 25, Righteous Father, the world has not known you. You see, the Father is righteous, and the world isn't. When we think about the righteousness of God, we just think about the fact, it's very simply, God is always right. And sometimes that's hard to understand when we look around the world. But what we have to be reminded of as Christians is that we see with our ears is that we're called to live by faith, not by sight. That's why I love the Song of Moses so much in Deuteronomy 32, where he gives us this wonderful image of God as the rock that's carried forward throughout the rest of the scriptures. And he says, our God is the rock. He does nothing wrong. And in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering, and in the midst of doubt, you can cling on to that rock and hold on to it because it's true. And God will not change. The problem is the world's not like that. The world's unrighteous. The world's dark. And when we think about it in relationship to the Son, the one who made everything, he comes down into the world and John says the world didn't recognize him. And not only did it not recognize him, it wanted nothing to do with him. We'd rather go our own way, please. Yet into that world as it is, Jesus comes. As we just saying, Jesus takes on flesh. And we see Jesus walk this earth. And we see Jesus be hungry, and we see Jesus be thirsty, and we see Jesus weep. And why does he do it for us and for our salvation? Is that the one who is above all, the one who is above time, comes into time for us and for our salvation? And so it's left for us to testify that that's true. Because the good news about sharing the gospel is you don't have to be innovative or creative. In fact, you better not be. If anybody comes to you on a Sunday morning and says, hey, everybody, I have brand new information for you. Danger, Will Robinson. That's not the job. The job is to simply to testify to what's true to testify to, as John says in his letter, to what we have seen and what we have heard. The job is to testify about Jesus. 
And so we go forth in the world that does not know Jesus to tell the world about Jesus. And what opens up that opportunity is an uncommon unity within a local church. It's for us as brothers and sisters to be walking hand in hand with one another, bearing one another's burdens, living out the love that Paul calls for in 1 Corinthians 13, the very love which the Father has shown us in His Son, Jesus. That's the call. So then what do we do? How are we to go forth? Well, the wonderful thing about this prayer is that the Father answers it. How do we know that He answers Jesus' prayer? Well, because after the agony of Good Friday comes the glory of Resurrection Sunday. And to the Son's request to be glorified, the Father says, yes. And so what we find is, is that the Father has already said yes to the work of missions in His Son. We need only believe. Because that's precisely what Paul means when he says all the promises of God have found their yes in Jesus. He is God's yes. And it's all the more remarkable when you think about how this gospel ends. Is you find the guys all together on a boat and they're all devastated and broken down and dreary, especially Peter, and understandably so. Last time we saw him, he didn't end on the strongest of notes. Denying three, Jesus three times is a pretty bad day at the office. And yet there they are fishing. And the thing about the disciples is these guys are fishermen by trade, but oddly enough, in the Gospels, you never find them actually catching fish. <laughs> They're like the worst fishermen. <laughs> and yet Jesus says, I'm going to take you all, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Because Jesus works in ways we can never understand. And so we find these guys, and they're in the boat, yet again, not catching any fish. And they hear a voice from the shore, have y'all caught anything? No. Why don't you try the other side? Okay. What else we got to lose? Throw the net. Abundantly full. Completely full. And Peter recognizes the Lord. He jumps out of the boat and leaves the guys behind to do all the work of hauling in the fish. (laughs) And they haul in all of that fish. And here's the wonderful part of the story. Not a single fish is lost. Because that's how God goes about doing the work of missions. Because what Jesus is doing in his ministry and his life and his ongoing prayer for us is making this prayer happen. Because remember what Jesus says about himself. I am the good shepherd. I don't lose a sheep. So when we think about and go forth into the work of missions, we remember that truth. God's not going to lose a sheep. It is simply our job to go forth from a congregation bound together by Christ and to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ to testify to this wonderful truth. Because when you think about what Jesus wants for you, this is what he wants. Father, 
I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundations. Friends, regardless of what your week has looked like, please know that what Jesus wants, if you're in him, if you have believed in him and confessed that he is Lord, what he wants is for you to be with him. Because in John 14, Jesus says, I am going to prepare a place for you. And that place is precisely what Jesus is asking for here. That we would be together with Jesus and see him as he is. And what we are saying and what we go forth and say is one day we will. As a pastor like to put it, the reason we know that the future of missions is secure and the reason we know that our future is secure is for only one reason. And it is not our works. The only reason our future is secure is because Christ's future is secure. That is the only reason. And my friends, that is more than enough. It's more than enough. Because when we think about what y'all have been preaching through and the series you've, you've been working through, in so many ways, this is John's version of the Lord's Prayer. And in so many ways, this last section of Jesus' prayer is Jesus saying, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the reason we know it will be is because the Father sent the Son and the Son did the will of the Father on earth as it has always been in heaven. And so when we go forth, friends, what we need to go forth doing is praying to God. See, prayer's not perfunctory. Prayer's not a throwaway. Prayer is an act of faith. One of the things I kind of realized just a year or so ago is I think I had a really kind of flawed idea of what it means to grow up as a Christian. I think I really did believe that, that the more mature you grow as a Christian, the more independent you become. You kind of feel like, I got this. I'm good. It is exactly the opposite. You grow more dependent on Jesus. You grow more conscious of your need for him don't you? After all, that's precisely Paul's point in 2 Corinthians. He says, when I'm weak, that's when God goes to work. And what prayer does is testify to our good and necessary dependence on God. We pray to God because we need Him, and it is good for us to need Him. That's why Jesus tells the disciples in John 14 through 16 so often, ask, ask, ask. And so what do we see Jesus doing? He's asking for you and he's asking for me. And so when we think of the work of missions, what we should do is ask. We should ask God to make sure that the gospel gets to every tribe and tongue and nation. And we ask in faith because we know he will because Jesus has risen from the dead. And we go forth from this place, regardless of how hard things may look, knowing that what Jesus wants is for us to be with him and to see his glory together. And we go forth knowing that one day we shall. So until that day, we proclaim the gospel of Christ day by day, together with one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your good news, and we thank you so much of the work you've done for us in your son Jesus. 
We thank you that you have bound us together as brothers and sisters. And so, God, I pray that you would help us walk out in that love in which you have bound us. I pray we would be united in your name and united in your glory. And I pray we would go forth to tell others the good news that Jesus has come to reckon with their sins. Jesus has come to deal with their sins. If they would only repent and believe that there is a place for them with Jesus. And God, we long for that day. But until that day, might we faithfully testify to your Son. As in his name we pray. Amen.